Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Evelyn Grace Hartley was a 15-year-old from La Crosse, Wisconsin. She was a popular girl who didn't mind studying on a Friday night. On October 24, 1953, she was babysitting for the first time at the home of the Rasmussens. At 8.30, Evelyn's father called to see how she was doing. There was no answer. Worried, he drove over to see Evelyn and found the house had been broken into. Evelyn was gone. She was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. I was watching Captain America Civil War for about the 20th time recently. There's the scene where Cap's team is about to take on Iron Man's at Leipzig Holly Airport in Germany. Tony Stark makes the joke, wow, it's so weird how you run into people at the airport. And it's an absolute true statement. I've experienced it myself. It's like the shadow of coincidence looms large over airports, as if some supernatural force. Yet I'm sure some statistician can break the phenomenon down into percentages and graphs and bring it all back to Earth. In the world of missing people, we often talk about coincidences. We contemplate if its shadow was hanging over this case or that one. We use phrases like wrong place, wrong time, and what are the odds that dot dot dot. All signs that we're trying to answer a fundamental question. Did this person disappear due to bad luck? Or was it part of a killer's plan? The answer to the question is important because each answer takes us in completely different directions. And this could be why Evelyn Hartley's case is still unsolved. 64 years later, we don't know the answer to that basic question. Nobody is sure if Evelyn was targeted or did coincidence's shadow envelope her that night. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Goodsight, charlieproject.org. Evelyn was babysitting a 20-month-old girl at the home of the Rasmussens in La Crosse, Wisconsin, on October 24, 1953. The family had a regular babysitter, but she had planned to go to the homecoming football game that the Rasmussens were also attending that night. So, Evelyn was hired as a replacement. 
At 8.30 p.m., Evelyn was to call her parents to check in, but the call never came. Mr. Hartley tried to call the Rasmussen residence, but no one answered. Worried, he drove the short distance to their house. He found its doors locked with the lights on inside. Mr. Hartley then discovered that a basement window had been opened and its screen had been knocked out. There were footprints near the window that would match ones found inside. There was also blood on the window that was eventually determined to be Evelyn's type. After Mr. Hartley entered through the open window, he found the baby asleep in its crib, but Evelyn wasn't there. The furniture was disarranged, Evelyn's school books were scattered, and her glasses were on the floor, broken. Over the days and weeks after the disappearance, many neighbors would say they neither saw nor heard anything, despite the proximity of their homes to the Rasmussen's. In addition, police found various items of clothing blocks, if not miles away from where Evelyn disappeared, that could possibly be connected to the case. Many suspects have been named and investigated since 1953, including the serial killer Ed Ginn. The police even received a taped confession. Still, Evelyn's case remains unsolved. The interview for this episode is with Anthony from crimeblogger1983.blogspot.com. Unfound News Have you checked out Unfound at triblive.com yet? You should. After a few glitches on the first day, the page runs and looks great. The pictures, the write-ups, the logo, I can't thank them enough for the work they've put into it. While I'm at it, I need to thank Potomatic.com, the hosting site for Unfound. I know Libsyn, Blueberry, and some others get more attention from true crime podcasters, but Potomatic has never let me down. I called them when the Trib and I were having some RSS feed issues last Friday. Within a minute, I had Tech Guy Sloan on the line, and he was very helpful. I can't thank him enough. I would recommend Potomatic to anybody wanting to start a podcast. Also in regards to the Tribune Review, we are slowly putting together how we will be working on disappearances in western Pennsylvania, with us doing one in-depth article a month. A couple days ago, I typed out a list of the cases. There are 85. That's south of Interstate 80 and west of State College, so like one-third of Pennsylvania. 85 cases. Myself and the Trib certainly have our work cut out for us, but I'm really excited about getting started. Finally, less than a week from today, I will be attending Florida's Missing Persons Day in Tallahassee on December 14th. I don't have any big plans or anything. I'm just going to go up there to meet some great people who to this point I only know by talking to them on the phone. I'll be there for the day. Maybe I'll see you there. Where you can find Unfound. On Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Podomatic, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Podbean, and Overcast. And this week's big announcement, Unfound is now on Spotify, thanks to Podomatic.com. I appreciate my podcast hosting company for doing that for me. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The email address, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. 
the website, unfoundpodcast.com. Please check out the Secret Stephen Kocher episode, now playing there. Amazon.com, volume one in both ebook and print form, $2.99 and $10.99 respectively. Volume two coming shortly. On Patreon, you can start contributing to Unfound for as low as $2 a month. Unfound also has a PayPal account. And also, you can go to makeplayingcards.com where you can find the Unfound First 52 deck. Check that out. Go to that site. Just do a search for Unfound and you'll find them. And please mention Unfound on all true crime Facebook pages and other websites and forums. Thank you. I'm very happy to have back to the show. I think he is our first repeat guest, Anthony from crimeblogger1983.blogspot.com. Anthony, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Anthony, you were first with us back in August of 2017 for the Tammy Leopard case. And now you are back to discuss the disappearance of Evelyn Hartley in 1953. What can you tell us about Evelyn? Evelyn Hartley, uh, she was a 15-year-old junior at Central High School in La Crosse, Wisconsin. She was born November 22, 1938 in Texas. She had a, a younger sister, Carolyn, and two older brothers, Richard and Thomas. Her parents were Richard, Dr. Richard P. Hartley and Ethel Hartley. They were from Illinois. Um, Dr. Hartley was a uh, teacher of biology at then La Crosse State College, which is now uh, the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. Evelyn was um, she was pretty active in like her uh, church and her school programs, but she seemed like a pretty pretty much what you'd describe as an, an all-American girl back then. Um, she uh, in school she was uh, involved in drama and the school newspaper. And in church, she sang in the choir, and she actually, the previous summer, she had attended a, a Presbyterian youth camp. Um, she seemed like a, a normal 15-year-old girl, even if you think about today's standards. Um, and she didn't have a, an active boyfriend. She dated a few times, but nothing was serious. She seemed like just uh, nobody really ever had, a, ever had a bad thing to say about Evelyn Hartley. Just a personable young woman. 15 years old, maybe ninth grade, 10th grade, something like that. And um, was babysitting, because that plays a part in her disappearance, was that something she often did? I know this might have been the first time with the Rasmussens, but overall, is that a job she had at that time in her life? She had not babysat for the Rasmussens before. She actually hadn't done any babysitting in three months. But from what I read and from what I've interpreted, it's something she did, you know, semi-frequently, enough to where, you know, she would establish a routine of having to call or calling her parents at like 8.30 the night that she babysat to check in with them and stuff. So she hadn't done it in three months, and she never did it with the Rasmussens, but it's something she did, and she was familiar with, you know, doing so. Okay. Do you have any idea how the Rasmussens even found out uh, that she was a babysitter in the neighborhood if she'd never babysat for them before. Any idea? Yeah, her uh, her dad, um, like I said, he was uh, a teacher of biology at La Crosse State University. He was friends with Vigo Rasmussen, who was also a science teacher at La Crosse State University. So they were friends, and 
that's how he got to uh, got to where Evelyn was uh, filling in. She she wasn't the original babysitter. The original babysitter was uh, a Janice Cowley, but she wanted to attend the uh, homecoming because it was homecoming weekend that that week, um, and she wanted to attend the game. So a week. A week prior, the changes were made to where Evelyn would substitute for Janice. So it was known a week before this disappearance that Evelyn, instead of Janice, would be at the Rasmussen's house on October 24th, 1953. Like right, a week correct. before. It was not a last-minute thing, but this had been planned like a week in advance. Yeah, it was a week in advance, and she agreed to do it. And Evelyn later kind of didn't want to go to do it. She wanted to try to get out of it. I don't know what the reasoning was. Maybe she wanted to attend the game. She didn't really want to do it, but her mother said that, you know, she had agreed to do it and she needed to do it. So unfortunately she went that night. Now let's uh, set up it. it, um, Let's set it up this way. Who were the Rasmussens and what kind of neighborhood did they live in? Uh, The Rasmussens were just like any other family. Um, They had, um, Two daughters, um, Rosalind, who was in her teenage year. I think she was um, she was probably a little bit younger than Evelyn. I think she was around 12, uh, around that age, early teens maybe. And uh, they had a baby who was also named Janice, who was 20 months old. Um, and uh, Vigo, uh, Vigo, Beck, Ma- Vigo Beck Rasmussen, excuse me. He was, uh, like I said, he was a science teacher at um, La Crosse State University. They obviously, both Dr. Hartley and uh, the Rasmussens, uh, Vigo and his wife, Madeline, they, they all three of them had um, some good influence on La Crosse State University. There's a there's a leadership award named after uh, Vigo Rasmussen and his wife, Madeline. Even to this day? Even to this day, yeah. Wow, that's impressive. And... Um, Richard Hartley retired from the Cross State College um, in 1972, and if you if you go to the page, there's a page that shows the science department. Um, he's listed uh, under I think it's emeritus status, um, so he's honored as a as a doctor uh, still to this day as well for the Cross State College, which is now the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. So that's how they knew each other. So they were uh, both the Hartleys and uh, the Rasmussens were accomplished people, educated people. So I'm guessing that they both lived in decent communities, maybe not high-end communities, but decent communities uh, of the early 1950s. Was that would that be how you portray uh, where the Rasmussens lived? Where yeah, the Evelyn, Evelyn disappeared from. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry I didn't cover that. Uh, the the Rasmussens lived at. Uh, at uh, and it's a new addition. It was called the Cooley Addition. It was a new subdivision of houses uh, that was just just brought up a couple of years prior. Um, there wasn't even um, paved roads. Uh, there was all dirt roads still in the houses. Um, there was no trees in the neighborhood even. Like I've got an overhead shot of the the addition, and there's no trees, and you can see that there are dirt roads uh, around. Uh, it's all fresh ground. Um, now, if you go to Google Maps and you look it up, there's foliage everywhere. There's there's trees blocking and stuff. But then it wasn't. There was not even any street lights, really. So it was really, really brand new addition. All right. And no street lights might have 
help the perpetrators in this crime. We just don't know right right at this point. Yeah, more than likely, yeah. Yeah, but the house is fairly close together, kind of track houses, you know, kind of the same house right down the street. Uh, maybe people living on like a half acre or something like that. Correct, yeah. Real close together. Brand new, okay. brand new division of houses. Okay. And did you said that the Rasmussens uh, had a daughter that might have been around Evelyn's age. Did Evelyn know this daughter? Did they go to school together or, or anything like that? Do you know? Um, uh, from what I understand, they they may have known each other. Uh, I don't know. Think, I think they were probably acquainted with each other, but they weren't friends or they didn't hang out or anything like that. Okay. And the reason this daughter didn't babysit her younger daughter is because this daughter wanted to go to the homecoming game. Correct, yeah. And the 20-month-old they thought was too young to go out. So. Right. So what happened that uh, day into the night of October 24th, 1953? Evelyn showing up at the Rasmussen's. How, what do we know all these years later? What do we suspect, okay. I should say? Um, well, at 6.30, um, Vigo Rasmussen drove over to the Hartley's home, which was at 1533 Johnson Street, uh, to pick up Evelyn. Uh, the houses are not that far away from each other. The Hartleys and the Rasmussen didn't live that far away. It was uh, a little over one and a half mile away, the houses, so it was a quick drive. He picked her up. They got back to the house. Um, Shortly thereafter, the Rasmussen's leave at 6.45 for the game, and they leave instructions for the baby Janice um, with Evelyn. They leave at 6.45. Um, she was supposed to cover uh, baby Janice at 7.15. She's supposed to check, lay her down at 7 o'clock and then cover her with a blanket at 7.15. Around 7 p.m., Ethel Hartley, which was uh, Evelyn's mom, she described it as a mother's intuition. She felt like she needed to call Evelyn. Um, she just had one of these weird feelings, she said. She felt like she needed to call. But like I said, they had a, a semi-established routine, a semi-regular thing that when she was out babysitting that she would call at 8.30. So they decided not to call her. And... Um, at 8.30, she, uh, they didn't call. They waited a little bit. So uh, Dr. Hartley started to call the Rasmussen house. He called it twice, and there was no answer. He then um, started to call the neighbors um, of the Rasmussens to see if Evelyn had came over to their house by chance. And he called uh, some of the neighbors. Uh, they stated that they had not seen her. So at this point, he was kind of understandably alarmed by it. And um, he told Ethel that he was going to go over to check on his daughter or their daughter, Evie. She sometimes they called, she was sometimes called Evie to check on Evelyn. And um, he, um, he arrived at the, at the Rasmussen home at about 920. And um, he knocked on the door. There was no answer. He then um, started to do some um, just walking around the house. And um, he looked through a window and he saw 
on the living room floor, Evelyn Hartley's, uh, her glasses that were broken on the floor. And he also saw one of her shoes on the living room floor. So um, as, as he was making his rounds across around the house, he noticed that there was a, a basement window that was open and um, there was a screen that was uh, taken out and it was nearby on the ground. Um, he then proceeded to go into the house. The doors were locked, so he couldn't get in into any of the doors. So he goes into the basement window and um, he goes through the basement window. Yeah, he goes through the basement window. It, it's dark in the basement. The lights are not turned on. He's obviously he's familiar. He's been in the house before because he knew where the light was and he turned the light on. So he, he proceeds to go up the stairs at the foot of the stairs is her other shoe. Um, he goes up and into the living room. Uh, from what I've read, some of the furniture was disarranged. I don't know how how disarranged it was, but they say it was disarranged. Uh, her textbooks were scattered. She had bought about four textbooks with her to study that night. They were uh, kind of scattered about, um, and there was a radio that was playing that was turned on. Um, the reports vary. Some say that it was pretty loud. Others say that you couldn't hear it until you got inside the house. So, But um, he did go into the bedroom, and baby Janice, thankfully, the baby was still sound asleep in, in the house, but there was no sign of Evelyn um, at all. None. None. Um, just a couple maybe points uh, that I want to make about this is maybe a couple curious things. One about the house. The house had no curtains uh, right. may, that might have, if there was a perpetrator in this circumstance, could have looked in the window. Why didn't this house have curtains? Was it that new? What do you know about that? Yeah, I think it was more a lot of the houses in the neighborhood didn't have curtains. I guess that was just the way of life back then. Um, like today, if you drive down a neighborhood, uh, at night, especially maybe not so much during the day, but at night, you're going to see a lot of the curtains closed and people don't want you looking in and into their house. Understandably is privacy. Then that time, um, it was a much more open, I guess, a society or maybe even a community. People weren't, um, weren't like that. They weren't as, um, I guess you say closed off. They didn't mind if you looked in their house. You know, it was kind of more open. It was a more friendly, I guess it could be a more friendly time, I guess you'd say. So I guess it was kind of like the, it's a reflection of the times. Or it could have been that there was, part of it could have been that it was a new neighborhood. But I do remember um, watching, a, you know, a couple of interviews with people and they're saying that after this, that, you know, the curtains went up and everybody closed their curtains because of this. This had a, a, a profound impact on the community. So I think it was more of a reflection of the times. I bet it did. And something else, uh, Evelyn, for some reason, had brought some flowers over to the Rasmussens. It, yeah. Is that is that strange to, in your mind, or what do you make of that after doing all the investigation that you've done? Well, that's something I didn't know until just recently. The anniversary was uh, October 24th, and the Lacrosse Tribune, a local newspaper, had an interview with uh, Rosalind, um, who's still alive. Um, and that was the only time that I ever heard. She said that uh, Evelyn had a big bouquet of flowers with her when she came back 
after um, Viga Rasmussen picked her up, and she saw them place her place the flowers on the on the on the table. And um, but I I had not read that anywhere else. So I mean, it maybe it's a detail that nobody really ever got to. But she was also young, and I doubt they interviewed her too. So they mainly stuck with uh, the parents and of the, like the Rasmussens and the Hartleys when they interviewed them. So they probably didn't talk to talk to Rosalind. But um, yeah, I did not know that until just recently. I, she does have a, a Facebook, and and I did message her about that. I'm kind of waiting to hear if she would like to talk. But from what I read in the interviews it's not something she likes to talk about it it shook both understandably both of those families up pretty 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 badly so right so we don't know it seems kind of maybe a little strange that a girl going to babysit somewhere takes a bouquet of flowers with her that seems mm-hmm. a little strange we don't know where those flowers came from we don't know if there was some guy who was trying to impress her or but i'm guessing that her parents have said that they didn't get those flowers for, and it wouldn't maybe make sense that the Rasmussen's gave them to her. So we just don't know. We don't know, and it, but we also, like I said, it, it, you might want to take a look at it from a perspective of it being 1953. It could have just been um, a gift uh, for homecoming that she wouldn't be able to attend. So some one of her friends may have just given it to her, saying, "Hey, so you, you can't, you know, attend the game, but we're going to miss you. Here's some flowers." I don't know. I it's something that I, I kind of I. I picked up on and I was trying to analyze it, but without any more information, there's not a whole lot to go on with that. Okay. And I think we also have to point out that by the time that uh, Mr. Hartley would have gotten over to the Rasmussen's, it had been very dark. You had mentioned that there's no streetlights, so he gets out of his car. It's dark in the neighborhood. Maybe there are houses, house lights on inside the Rasmussen's. But he'd be walking around the outside of that house, I mean, totally in the dark unless he had a flashlight or something. Very, very dark. Very dark. Okay. But maybe when this, if it was a kidnapping, abduction, whatever happened, it could have still been light out at seven something uh, in the evening. Possible. At that time, October. Yeah. uh, October uh, of that year, late October, um, depending on when the sun sets. And I did read that there was a full moon that night as well, so that could well, that, would, that might help out a little bit. So he gets in, uh, Mr. Hartley gets in through this window that I guess was big enough for an adult male to fit through. Yeah, 14 inches across, yeah. So the window was only 14 inches across. That is, Correct. I guess Mr. Hartley must have been kind of a skinny guy then. I can't imagine myself fitting through a... Well, we don't know. I don't have the width of it but it was 14 inches across at least so if you imagine the width being somewhat somewhat you know it's manageable i mean and that's something that the um that the police scrutinized a lot too in terms of the the evidence they found later on so mr hartley figures out very quickly that something's wrong his daughter's not there although the baby is fine the baby's sleeping in the back in the back room but there's blood near that window there's the shoes, the books, uh, the glasses are broken. What does he do? Um, he, he's just, a lot of people have scrutinized this. A lot of people online scrutinize his um, his behavior. But he, he goes across the street, and um, I'm I think it's easy to say that he's in a state of shock at this point. So he's not thinking very clearly 
Um, he just doesn't know what's going on. He went over across the street to a Frank Linder's house, who was a neighbor, and told him what's going on. And um, Linder, the way he described him, it's easy to say that he was in a state of shock. Um, he couldn't even dial the phone number that uh, for the police station. So Frank Linder dialed it for him, and then he, he spoke to the police. Uh, at the time, um, the call was logged in at 9.49 that night. And then a couple minutes later, um, two patrolmen uh, arrived at the residence. Um, they went over briefly. Uh, I think it was like a cursory examination of the area. And, you know, they were able to ascertain that everyone was not in the immediate area. So they called out a detective out at, to come out. The detective came out, and then uh, that's when they started to uh, just do the do the investigation. There was a search that lasted until 1 a.m. that night, and then it was uh, it was called off until the next day. Um, they said they secured the crime scene, but as as you've discussed in prior episodes, and we've discussed at length, that the the evidence gathering isn't like it is today. So sure. Sure. So they, they said they closed off the areas of the crime scene, but later they admitted that they probably didn't do a good job of that. And a lot of the evidence was probably lost in terms of like other, there were footprints and stuff. They did, they were able to find tracks and in, in the fresh ground out there behind the house and and, and, and other houses. So it, it does look like uh, there was a prowler around that night. In fact, um, that being a newly air, a new area, excuse me, newly developed area, there was fresh ground out. So if somebody was to walk around the neighborhood or and stuff, it's really easy to let leave tracks in. It looks like there were tracks by a size 11 shoe, and it looks like um, there were some attempted break-ins of of the neighbor houses as well. Uh, there were screwdriver pry marks on a couple of the windows of the neighbors' houses, and it didn't look like. Um, he was able to get into those. And there was also prime marks on three other windows of the Rasmussen house before he, the intruder uh, settled on the basement window. And the reason he did that was he was able to take the screen out and the window that was used for the entrance in the home, it, it was somehow warped to where it could not be locked. So um, it was easy to open that window and, and to be able to get inside the home that way. Huh, that's weird. A new development and a window is already warped on a building. Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't know exactly. I've read a couple places online, but this is secondhand. This isn't from any kind of news article, but people say that it was warped by water. So I can imagine either by snow or something. I don't know exactly how it was warped, but it was warped in a fashion to where it could not be locked. Okay. Uh, the Rasmussens, they're out at the football game while this is all happening. It's Hope Come Coming game. Do they come back, I guess, right into the middle of this? When they get there, the police are already there. They're probably wondering what's going on. Or, uh, And what about their their daughter, uh, who was supposed, I guess, supposed to babysit that night, or the regular ba- babysitter, I should say? You know, Did she have any part in this? Did she come over? What was all happening with the Rasmussens when, when they came back to see all of this happening at their house? Well, they came back uh, 
I, I don't know how the exact time. The only time that it mentions this is in that new article from the Lacrosse Tribune. Um, Rosalind states that when they came back, there were cop cars everywhere in front of the Rasmussen home. And then um, Mrs. Rasmussen jumped out of the car screaming her baby because she thought something happened to her baby. But the baby was uh, thankfully again unharmed. And then um, that's pretty much, there's not a whole lot of regarding the time that the Rasmussen's got back. I'm assuming that it was, you know, after the game or if somebody gave them a heads up and then they came back. But that, that's pretty much it in regards to that. Roslyn, um, like I said, she did that recent interview with the Cross Tribune and described it. There was there was blood located about 10 feet away from the basement window near the Rasmussen home. There was blood left on the side of a uh, of a neighbor's house at 2311 Cooley Drive, which was the Eugene Downer home. It was left on the side of a garage and uh, also on the side of a um, a window. Uh, I guess they called it a window well. It seeped into a window well, so I guess it was kind of like a basement window for that home as well. And there was a good amount of blood left there. Um, so it, what do you what do you derive from that? What do you think that means? Uh, I would concur with what law enforcement stated. They believe that Evelyn um, was placed there. Either she was, you know, fast walked in, in a manner to where somebody's got her and they're kind of pushing her along or somebody carried Evelyn and she became kind of heavy and they were trying to get to a vehicle. So they sat her down real quick there and she stayed there for a short time and bled there. Something I forgot to mention was there were some fresh uh, tracks of mud on the living room floor of the Rasmussen home. Um, but oddly, there was no there was no mud in the basement coming up to the basement or in any of the rooms. The only place there was mud was in the living room, which is something that kind of stood out that law enforcement couldn't didn't understand. But um, there's blood there. And some of the blood that was left on the side of the, the downer home, um, there, it was a handprint. And it was a suspect handprint. It wasn't Evelyn's. Um, but the handprint had red fibers on it, red um, fibers, cloth fibers. And uh, Evelyn at the time was wearing some uh, red denim pants that had that, uh, that kind of thread count to it as well so it was from her pants obviously how far would you say the these blood uh, the the window well with the blood in it and the handprint how far were they away from the rasmussen home 100 uh, 100 feet 100 50 feet, feet? 100, 100 100 so feet away yeah okay. they're all called the houses sat close together so all the investigators thought something different there was no consensus of this is how it happened so mm-hmm. some of them some of them didn't even think there's, there's not even a consensus on whether or not the person, the prowler, saw Evelyn prior to entering the building. I personally believe that he didn't see Evelyn. But some of them think that a couple of investigators thought that he saw Evelyn in the house and decided that he wanted to take her from that point. I don't think it happened that way. Um, I don't think she was – that he saw her. I think she was out of sight at the time, and he came in and, and it was all – he surprised her. She surprised him, and stuff got out of hand. But um, for some reason, 
they they hired a, a criminal investigator months after this, a um, an A.M. Josephson. He was an army criminologist. He was an expert on the polygraph. Um, he he uh, they they actually created a new position. He was criminal investigator. He was the only one to ever have that position, and they abolished it about five or six years later after that. And there's never been another criminal investigator. But he he was hired specifically to take on the Evelyn Hartley case. And, and, and other jobs, of course, but um, Josephson thinks somehow, I don't, I don't follow this train of thought, but he thinks that she was trying to escape to the basement window, or at least she was pushed up into the basement window and moved outside. I, I don't buy that. Um, it doesn't make sense. I've went over the scenarios a lot in my head and that doesn't really make sense. Well, let's try. Um, let's think, try to set this up for everybody. Then, being we we have a lot of information here. So somebody, so some guy or or guys, or maybe there's a woman with him. We just don't know. Is prowling the neighborhood. They're taking a look at some different houses that they're looking to break into. All right, you stated mm-hmm. that there were marks on some other windows around the area, but it should be stated we're not sure if those marks were made that night or some other night. We just there would be no way to tell that probably unless you're looking for it, right? That's true. Okay, so they find the Rasmussen house. Maybe they see Evelyn, maybe they don't, or he doesn't. And they find this window, open it up, slide down into the basement, go up the stairs. Evelyn's there. There's a struggle, but we're still not sure. What you're saying is at this point, all these years later, we're still not sure if she was taken out the front door was taken out the back door, or was taken out the window that the people used or person used to get into the house in the first place. We're still not sure about that. Correct. Yeah, there's still no definite understanding of how. There's a couple. There's a couple different things about it. Um, there, apparently, and I've tried to do some research on it, but I hadn't dedicated a whole lot because there's so many details of this case that you can go down. You get you can get into all kinds of different rabbit holes yeah. into this case. But apparently the that that Rasmussen house had a self-locking front door, so I don't know exactly what that means. Um, but apparently it's a self-locks. I guess I guess that's the best way to describe it. So um, they think that at one point law enforcement said that they think it might have been somebody familiar with that type of lock or the home at least, because they think that any other person would have had trouble trying to get out the self-locking door. How far but, was the the basement window above the floor? That the window where the where that was opened. How far was it from a, the basement floor? I'm guessing it was what six feet, seven feet, something like that. Do you uh, know? It it may have been that much. There was a stool that was placed underneath the window. That's something that's very interesting too. I, I contend, and I I happen to believe that it was there like that already that it was fortuitous that it was underneath that window. And the reason I say that because the window was already warped. And uh, I'm thinking they've never elaborated on the stool placement. They have, I have a picture of it on my blog. I've seen it. Yeah. But um, I, I think, I think that it was just a happenstance that it was placed under there. Not not, people aren't really, aren't really, um, it's not a real popular theory to have it just placed under there, but the window was already warped. I'm thinking maybe, it was placed there uh, by happenstance or somebody tried to repair that window at one point and just left it there because when Hartley arrived and crawled through that window, it was still dark in the wind. It was still dark at, in the basement. Yeah. Nobody turned the light on. 
he, he turned it on. So um, unless the person had a flashlight or something, which I guess a prowler might have, I, I just don't understand. There was one set of tracks, at least from what, according to law enforcement, there was a set of tracks that circled the house. Nobody said there was two sets of tracks. So I just don't understand the placement of, if, if he did place it, there would be no reason to place it underneath the window unless he was trying to make it easy for him to get back out. But if there's nobody in the house, he could probably leave through one of the doors or windows, you know? So I'm, I, I happen to think that it was just placed under there and it, nobody else placed it under there. It was placed under there prior. And it was just happened to be there when he crawled through. Okay. Well, this uh, burglar slash kidnapper certainly got lucky. Of course, in the dark, he wouldn't have been able to see that stool anyway. Yeah, he, he wouldn't, wouldn't even he to. wouldn't he wouldn't have been able to do that. But it's possible, I suppose, that the stool was somewhere else. And then he's looking to leave out the house with Evelyn and decides the stool. Now he sees the stool, maybe, uh, mm-hmm. and puts it over by the window. But it's still, uh, you'd have to be. You'd, it, you'd think it would take more than one person to pull uh, a 15-year-old woman up through a, a cellar window. Yeah, and it just doesn't make sense to do it that way. Just to go out. The back door was located just upstairs. A lot of people say that, well, he wanted to use the – he wanted to do it that way because it's away from the, the street. Well, the back door is about as far away from the street as you can get, you know? And you can leave out the back door, and um, it didn't do that either. So I, I don't think that she was – a lot of the articles online, a lot of the the conjecture is that she was she was uh, drugged down into the basement, and that's why one of her shoes is at the foot of the stairs. Um, and she was lifted up, and another person pulled her out of the basement window. I, I just I don't see that. That seems personally. overtly complex. Yeah, it seems overtly complex, right? Um, let's try to establish uh, some other things here about that neighborhood for that night. Were it was were any of the neighbors home that night when she was yeah. babysitting? Were most of them home? A lot of them were actually home. Um, a lot of them were home. Actually, there was a neighbor a couple of blocks over that was outside doing some uh, gardening in in the night nighttime gardening in her yard. That was out. Um, there was the, the neighbors behind the Rasmussen home. She was uh, doing her dishes. Um, she didn't see anything. Out of the ordinary her her back her view of her from her window where she's doing the dishes looked directly into the back of the Rasmussen house and she didn't see anything or hear anything there um but it would have been dark because there's no straight lights yeah. or anything okay. there was a there was a light the back porch of the Rasmussen home was lighted so she would be able to see that but again she didn't she didn't see anything um there were some neighbors uh, in the area that They've never came. They've never really been detailed in terms of where they were. None of the immediate neighbors in the area around the house heard anything, but there were some um, neighbors blocks, a couple blocks away, or houses down, uh, not in the immediate vicinity, but houses down away from the rest of the time. They said they heard some screams. One, the one most mostly talked about is uh, the Satterbacks. And um, it wasn't until just last night that I actually they gave their address, and I looked it up on Google Maps. And the address for the Satterbacks are is is a mile away, north of of the Rasmussen home. And Elvin Satterbacks stated that he heard about two to three screams, with the last one being cut off or muffled in the middle of it. 
You may have heard screams, but I doubt it was Evelyn. Unless she, if she did, she had a pair of lungs on her, and nobody else in the immediate area in the houses heard her. Um, and not, that's not so. That's not to mention that if this person did abduct Evelyn to carry her a mile or three quarters yeah. of a mile or something, once again seems seems overtly complex. Yeah, and that's something that I took for granted. All these years of investigating it, that the Satterbacks probably heard the screams of Evelyn until I, I actually brought it up. And there's just, like I said, they may have heard screams, but it, it may it probably was not Evelyn. There's just, if she screamed that loud and that far away, other people in the immediate area should have heard her too. Oh, absolutely. But, but like I said, there were other neighbors that said that they heard screams. But this again, this is homecoming night. You know, parties are going on. It's hard to say, you know, if it what type of scream it was that Satterback said that was, uh, it was a, it was a frightened scream, but again, that far away. I mean, the high school that Evelyn went to central high school is located directly in between the house, the, the Satterback's house and the Rasmussen house. That's how big of it. It's a mile away. And then there's a big school there and stuff. And yeah. I just, I just don't see that. I don't know how the police believe that may have been Evelyn either. It just doesn't make sense to me. I doubt it. I doubt it. So is it your impression then that all of these people were home? I'm not saying all of the people in the neighborhood, but a, a majority of the people were in the neighborhood were home. But it still seems like this prowler or prowlers were trying to break into these homes, even though all of these other people were also home. You know, there were, there were a lot of people in the neighborhood that were home, but I'm, I'm assuming that the houses – I don't know. I, I can't speak for what that they were thinking. Obviously, they're not the smartest individual to break into houses and so on they were looking for something to steal but i i I maintain that they may have noticed the rasmussen's leave Mm -hmm. um and 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 there was no car in the driveway there's an indoor garage there at that location now but at the time there wasn't you had to park the car outside in the driveway i maintain that they they saw no car in the driveway and they figured that the rasmussen's weren't home and that's why they they because there was there were pry marks on other windows in the neighborhood, but there were three different pry marks on three separate windows of the Rasmussen home, and they couldn't get in, so they tried to get in that one. Um, they tar- it looks like that one was the one they fixed on. They were fixed on because I and I believe that there was no car in the driveway, and that's why they did it. So, and once again, we don't know if the you had mentioned there were pry marks, and looks like somebody had tried to break into some other houses in the area, but once again, we don't know if that was that night, the night before. A week before, right. we just don't know. Maybe those houses were trying to be yeah. broken into when those people weren't home. We just don't know. When there was prowlers, there was a prowler that was operating for the better part of the year in that area, and they weren't able to catch him. So it's really likely that those those Primarchs could have been there prior, like you said, and um, they didn't notice them until they were looking for them because obviously – Unless something's you notice something's missing in your home or something's damaged, you're not going to go around looking for for primarchs on your house. You're just not going to do it. But if something happens to like it did with the Rasmussen home, and you start looking for evidence and you find them, you you might automatically assume that those were made by the same night. That's exa- excellent point. Speaking of which, to your knowledge or to anybody's knowledge, was anything taken from the Rasmussen residence besides Evelyn? Nothing. Nothing's ever been reported as being taken. From the home besides Evelyn. So we have uh, one or more prowlers who break into a house but don't take anything except 
the girl, the teenager who was there. Maybe sure. once again, maybe she they didn't know she was there and that foiled their plans. But then it's like, well, why would they take her with them or him? We just don't know. That's one of these answers we still don't have over 60 years later. We just don't know. No, I have my theories on it, but uh, there's no like if it was a we can get to the, we'll get to the theories at the end. We let's just stick okay. to some of the more the the okay. facts at this second. Was the babysitter who was supposed to work at the Rasmussen's that night ever questioned? Uh yeah, they did it. They did talk to her. They talked to lots of the classmates of Evelyn's because the uh, the there was baby Janice, of course. Baby Janice was the one she was babysitting. Evelyn was babysitting, and then Janice Kelly was the original babysitter. So there were two Janices, but. Janice Kelly was a, a classmate of Evelyn's. Um, they interviewed her, and they interviewed lots and lots of of classmates, and they did. They they seemed to zero in on thinking that it was a a student for some reason, or at least they thought they would be able to find find some evidence or or break, make a break in the case by interviewing students. I don't understand that myself. That's something they focused on a lot. And I, I don't think it was somebody that was a student. I just don't think it was. Okay. So the next day, the day after, October 25th, 1953, they got volunteers together. Uh, where did they search? How many people were involved? And did the police kind of widen their net of talking to other people? And um, what can you also tell the listeners about a car being seen in the area? So the volunteer question and the car question. Uh, well, um, around noon, the day of the 25th, the police department issued an announcement on the radio that they were looking for volunteers to help search for the, the missing babysitter, Evelyn Hartley. So lots of, um, over a thousand people came out to the neighborhood on Cooley Drive, um, and uh, they were split up into groups. They searched lots of places. There was um, Frank Linder, who was um, the one that uh, Mr. Hartley went across the street to use his phone to call the police. He was involved in searches that was far away up north as, as French Island, which is about six or seven miles, if I remember correctly, north of La Crosse. So the, they branched out a lot. They They covered a lot of the wooded areas and and so on. Uh, the search went on for, for several days up until the 30th. Uh, that's when the, the searches, the big searches, the mass searches stopped and they started looking into other things, but um, nothing, well, there were things that were found, but the car, um, a couple of the neighbors stated that they saw a light tan colored sedan driving around the neighborhood. Uh, one of the neighbors stated she saw the, the car circle that neighborhood around three times at around 8.30, I believe, uh, that night. as a light-colored tan car. And that car, has it ever been identified? Was there anybody in it? Could this person identify anybody in it? How many people were in it? Anything like that? Had, had the car no, ever been was, seen since? No, they didn't get a, an actual... All they knew was a light-colored sedan. It was tan in color. And uh, the person that the neighbor that witnessed it said that it was too far away. She didn't see the occupant or occupants in them. Right. In the car, if there was any. Right. And it would have been 830 at night. It would have been dark. Mm -hmm. It would have been hard, tough to do that. 
So after that, um, how many days after um, people should know that Mr. Hartley, um, he made a public plea, you know, anybody knows anything to come forward, but they also gave him a lie detector test. Yeah, there were some suspicions thrown in in Hartley's direction. Uh, I can't imagine what he had gone through, but there was some public suspicion on Dr. Hartley, which there's no logic in that. But in order to avoid all of that, he, he willingly took a lie detector test, and they, it was, he was passed flying colors. They say it eliminated him. And if you think about it critically, there was just no reason for him to want to harm his daughter, and that's just the worst opportunity to do it. Why would you pick that night? You know, it just none of it would make any sense. It was just, but he wanted to clear it and then get it over with. So he he went with a lie detector test, and they cleared him. Has anybody else, maybe the neighbors, you mentioned this Mr. Linder who lived across the street, even uh, the Rasmussens themselves, do you have any knowledge if any of them or any of the other neighbors uh, had ever been, had ever taken lie detector tests, have ever, had, were ever given one? Not to my knowledge, no. They, they ended up doing mass testing of the, of the schools and the area, um, but nothing fruitful ever came of that. They wanted to test all the students, but... Parents started to object, and, and it was stopped around 300 after 300 students, and, and no viable lead ever came from that. Yeah, let's just talk about that for a second. This is something that would never happen in the 21st century, ever. Oh, no. In, in, in any community, at least in the United States, that the police actually went to the local high school and started giving lie detector tests to students mm-hmm. about this. Yeah, they did, um, and the, and some of the faculty. It was all they focused only on the male students too. It was, that's the interesting thing. They focused only the DA, the district attorney John Bosshard. He, he it was kind of weird his reasoning. He, they initially went to the FBI before the testing was done. The lie detector tests were done, and um, they brought all the information to the FBI. He described it. Bosshard himself described it as. This is a sex crime rather than a kidnapping, and he's a DA, and he would know that a sex crime was be a state offense, not a federal offense at the time. So I don't know why he took it to the FBI. The FBI told him, hey, we can't help you. We'll, we'll, we'll help you with some aspects of the case, but we're not going to start an investigation on our own because you said it was a sex crime, not a kidnapping. He was a kidnapping, the Lindbergh law at the time, um, they would have intervened. But apparently he thought it was a sex crime, which it could have been both. It could have been classified as both, but um, they didn't end up – they ended up assisting a little bit. They said the labs were open to them and so on, but they did. the FBI didn't start their own investigation. They never did. So, But they did focus on the students. During that weekend, it was, um, it was a Saturday that week. They had a, a student council um, a convention of students – from uh, I think it was the tri-state area, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and, and the surrounding states, um, in town in La Crosse. So there's a lot of kids in the area um, at the time. So I think that may have been why they focused in on the students so much. But again, like I said, nothing ever came of that, and it, that definitely would not have happened today. They also started car checks at gas stations. The gas station attendants were supposed to check cars. And to see if there was anything like blood or anything related to anything suspicious, they were supposed to report to the police. So the gas station attendants would, when they came into the cars, would come into the gas station. The gas station attendants would 
um, ask if they could go through the cars. Um, and once they did, they found nothing. They put my they put a sticker on the car stating my car is okay. Um, if if they did find something suspicious, they would still put the sticker on there, and then they would copy the license plate number down and and forward that to the authorities, to law enforcement, and then they would follow up on it. But it's again, just a nothing, different time in American culture, isn't it? Yeah, that I mean, stuff would never go on today. That could never no, happen. No, absolutely not. There'd be a lot of people that would be offended by it. I personally wouldn't be, but there'd be a lot of people that would understandably, I guess, be upset about it. It just shows how much, I guess, crime fighting has changed in 60-some years as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I and I don't even know of uh, how how common this was in the 1950s to, you know, put stickers on cars if they've been checked. You know, did that happen in a case in California or Florida or Maine? I, I have no idea, but it certainly sounds unique it's definitely unique i've never heard that in the cases i've looked into i thought it was unique i mean it's a good effort i guess but i don't know how thorough gas station attendance would be you know what i mean like how thorough could they be i don't know i guess some of them could be thorough but i can't say that they're not like they're trained investigators i don't think it'd be hard to they're not used to doing that as part of their job i don't think it'd be hard to get one by them or or say the person's local and they know the gas station attendant and they're friends you know i mean (laughs) Yeah. That makes sense to me, but just doing the best they could do with the technology of the time. Right. So. Let's um, move on to some of the other particulars. Who is Mr. X and what did, who is he actually? And what did he say? Well, two days after Evelyn was abducted, uh, they know they actually only referred to him as Mr. X during the time period, but he was later revealed to be a man named Ed Hoffer, who was a resident of La Crosse. He called the authorities stating that um, the night that Evelyn was abducted, uh, he went to his brother's-in-law's house, who was a couple houses down, I believe, on the opposite side of the street of the Rasmussen home. Now, since this is a newly developed area, this is something I've tried to look into. They said that it was on 25th Street, which is not far away from Cooley Drive. But I had to take into account that that was a newly developed area. Now, if you go to Google Maps and look up 25th Street, it's nowhere near Cooley Drive. So I'm assuming there were some changes because the 2300 block, 2311 Cooley Drive, 2300 block would be near 25th Street normally in residential areas. But it, now it's not. So I don't know which house he was going to, but he drove over to pick up his brother in law. So they can go either watch the game or go to the game. I'm not sure, but he stated that um, he noticed, and this is something that's changed a little bit too. Initially, the reports in the newspaper state that when he called the police, he told them that he had saw a man and a woman on the side of the Eugene Downer home, which is where the blood was later found. He said that he saw them, um, that... The female seemed to be in a semi-conscious position, but she was being assisted. Basically, the guy was holding her arm and helping her walk, being assisted. Um, And they were staggering. And he took it as um, some party goers that got probably a little tipsy early, and um, they were just partying. So he didn't think much of it. So he went into his um, brother-in-law's house. He was in there for a couple minutes, maybe three, and he came out. And as he 
uh, pulled out of the neighborhood and was leaving the area that a either a 1942 or 1941 Series D Buick model car, he almost ran into him. As he was leaving, it was coming directly towards him, and he either swerved or they swerved, and it, and it missed him pretty narrowly. But he saw for a brief second the driver of the car was wearing a baseball hat. Um, he was in the driver's seat, obviously, driving the car, and there were two people in the back seat. There was a male in the back seat and a female in the back seat. The female was resting her head on the back of the um, front passenger seat. And um, he didn't think much about it. He didn't hear about it until a couple of days later. Then he, then he called him up and told him what he saw. Um, he actually was given a lie detector test and he passed it. They wanted to know if this story was accurate, if he was making it up. And um, he passed the lie detector test, although law enforcement would state that they think that he may have um, used his imagination for some of the details. But I think they kind of put their foot in their mouth because they went out uh, a couple nights after that and wanted to test him on cars to see how much detail he could really notice. And um, he, he he got everything right. Like they, the car would pass him and they, he would ask what he was. I guess he knew cars very well because they asked him what kind of car was that and what the color was of it. And he got it every time. So um, they wanted to recreate something similar and he nailed it each time. So, mm. but later reports of that, later reports somehow in newspaper reports, I don't know whether this is something that was made a mistake and other newspaper accounts just re repeated the same mistake, but somehow. If you read columns later on, they state that there were two people with a female on the side of the house and not just one. So I don't know. But if you go back to the police finding evidence of, of one set of tracks. Now, I don't know how they may have missed. They may have missed another set of tracks or, you know, I don't know. But there's only one set of tracks along around the side that was going around circling the, the Rasmussen home. So unless... I know that guy got out and started to assist the person trying to get Evelyn to the car. But sure. when they did the invest investigation, they bought out bloodhounds and um, the bloodhounds tracks the scent. They say from the basement window all the way around to the backside of the house and to the location where Mr. X at Hoffer saw the, the two people or the one person with uh, or Evelyn with two people or one person, whichever it was, uh, the the scent was tracked up until the to the edge of the street and it was lost. So that's why law enforcement believes she's placed in a car, and that fits with Ed Hoffer. He didn't stay outside long enough to see a car pull up and for them to get in it, but he did see them along the side of the house, and that was the downer home where there was uh, the bloody handprint on the back of the garage and the and the window that uh, the window well that had blood in it. So. And so you find him believable? I mean, obviously they found him believable. Do you find him believable all these years later? Yeah, I do. I, I do believe that he did see. I do. I do think he's probably the last person to ever see Evelyn alive. I believe his account. And and the blood that was in the window well was matched. It had the same type of blood, which a a blood is not uncommon. I mean, it's not you know 
not rare by anything. So mm-hmm. at the time, the police said that like 45% of the population had type A blood. So, but with the thread count, they did the thread tests with red, it was red denim thread and she was wearing red denim jeans. So let's move on to a couple other things. Uh, the shoes and jacket, uh, that were found along with the brawn panties. Uh, where were these found? How far away from the Rasmussen home? And can they truly be, uh, connected to Evelyn's disappearance? A couple days after, on the 27th, it was beneath an over, overpass two miles south of the Rasmussen home. Uh, like I said, December 27th to 53, there was a, a bloodstained pair of panties and a bra was found. Um, they were in an area that was searched prior. Um, law enforcement believes that they were tossed sometime between Monday evening and at the time that they were discovered, Tuesday at noon. They were discovered around Tuesday of that week at noon on the 27th. They believe that they were thrown from a passing car. Um, there was, like I said, blood was on there. They were able to match. Um, they weren't able to actually determine because the parents couldn't make a determination on whether that was Evelyn's brown panties that was her size. And uh, the parents said that was stuff. She did wear things similar. But the nailer for me, and I do believe that those were Evelyn's under, you know, underwear were um, apparently um Evelyn was menstruating at the time and, and the blood that they found on on the panties at least was menstrual blood okay. and it was type a too so it's uh, a pretty good pretty good possibility that that was probably Evelyn's brawn panties but like you said type a blood fairly common blood. and and the the further you get away from the house the less likely it's going to be her blood it may be her blood the type a blood outside a window, but you get two miles away and flat find type A blood, the odds of it being her greatly decreases. Well, I mean, it was menstrual blood and it was her size and the parents said it was stuff that she would wear. So, yeah. I mean, it's a good possibility that hers hers, but there's no definite um, answer saying yes, that was hers or not. Yeah. So, uh, How about the, the shoes and the jacket? Would you say that they are definitely part of this crime or, or what? Well, um, the shoes, let me get my notes real quick. Where's my notes on the shoes? The shoes were found on the 30th. There's, there's a discrepancy on whether they were found on the 30th of October that year or the 29th. But um, law enforcement says that they were obviously, again, they were placed there in an area that was previously searched. Um, they were... Um, found two miles outside of Coon Valley, which was south of La Crosse. I believe it was about 11 miles south of La Crosse, if I remember correctly. Um, looks like they were, they said they were placed there. Um, they were placed there probably Monday morning on the 26th, excuse me. Because this tells you how bad sometimes newspaper reports get. They said they were placed there sometime at 7.30 p.m. Saturday, October 23rd, which can't be the case because the abduction happened on the 24th. That's right. 
So, right. but that was one I started reading that the other day. I'm like, that can't be right. But that's what the newspaper stated. But I guess they were looking for Evelyn before she disappeared. I guess I don't know. <laughs> um, but they were size 11 shoes, the same as the 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 prints that were left around this around the house in the neighborhood. They had a distinctive suction cup tread on the bottom of them, which was matched. There was um, what what the clincher is for me with that is that the the shoes were by spectrographic analysis determined to have been in the Rasmussen home. And when I got into that farther, it says dirt claws dirt clods from the shoes were found on the premises, and the particles from them contained a metallic magnetic substance of the same type gleaned from sweepings taken from the home. So I guess in layman's terms, I guess they the same type of material they swept up for as evidence at the Rasmussen home. They had the same type of uh, metal fragments or metallic magnetic substance that was on the shoes as well that was discovered on uh, two miles outside of Coon Valley. So that's how they were able to link the shoes with with the, the same type of suction cut pattern underneath the shoes. And um, I guess from the substances they used as evidence that they gathered. So I guess they called it spectrographic analysis, but they were able to determine that the shoes were at the crime scene. And they were in an area previously searched, like I said. So. And what about the jacket? The jacket's uh, interesting. The jacket's very interesting. There's not a whole. I've got pictures of it on my blog, but there's no definite time in which. Apparently, a, a driver of a farm grader was driving along Highway 14, which is the highway that the, the shoes were found. And the shoes would have been some 800 feet away from the jacket. And it was on the same side. It looks like there's – they don't ever give you specifics on how the shoes were found. I said they said they were found inside of a, a ditch along the side of the road. A lot of other times you hear – read it, they say they were placed there. So I don't know whether they were thrown from a moving car or if somebody went down there and just placed them down there. I don't know. But the jacket was found by a driver of a farm grader. He saw the jacket along the highway in a ditch on the east side, the same side of the the road that the shoes were found on. And he kept it – one couple reports say that he kept it for about a week and then turned it in. Other reports state that the police followed up on a rumor and found the jacket in the possession of a farmer and acquired the jacket on November 17th. Um, very weird. I don't know which one to take for granted. I don't know if either of them are true, but – uh, there seems to be a discrepancy on that. Um, and the interesting thing is um, when they acquired the jacket, they didn't seem to question the farmer that drove the, the grader that found it. So they never did question him. He just handed him the jacket, and that was it. The jacket had blood on it, didn't it? Yeah, the jacket did have blood on it. They were The bloodstains were on the front of the jacket, and there were some on the back of the jacket. Um, apparently, they were they they determined that the the blood that was on the jacket was not from the wearer. I don't know how they determined that, but that's what was reported. So I guess they looked at the jacket. Um, it was it was a used jacket. It is fairly well worn. Uh, there were metal paint flecks on it. It had been cut off at the bottom and rehemmed in white thread. The one of four of the buttons were missing. 
uh, there was a wear mark running the entire width of the jacket under the armpits. They speculated that it might have been possibly from a safety harness. Um, there were bass fibers in the jacket, in the left pocket, and on one of the left pockets of the jacket. The bass fibers were like the kind used in scrubbing brushes. They did a lot of tests on the jacket, but at one point, the criminal investigator, Josephson, stated that he thought of the steeple jack, which would use the same type of kind of harness that the wear marks would show on the jacket, might have been involved. I, I think that uh, the scientific testing they did was good, but I wouldn't have relied on it so much because you never know if the jacket was secondhand or not. You know, that stuff could have been on the jacket and somebody could have found the jacket and given it to somebody. They also thought that the size of the jacket, size 36 jacket, was too small to have been worn by a person that wore size 11 shoes. And I don't like that either. Yeah. Um, the, the jacket was cut off at the bottom. That that could have meant, I mean, it was size 36. I don't know if they said it was size 36 after it was cut off and rehammed or if it was originally a size 36. But um, it could that could have been you know, a larger jacket and they could have cut off the bottom for whatever work that the person that wore that couldn't have a, a loose fitting jacket at their profession. They, didn't, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't have it be loose like that and they cut it off to make it shorter. I don't know. But um, there was a lot of scrutiny on the jacket. Um, like I said, he thought a steeplejack was involved, but if you read into articles, he also stated, I don't think the wear marks were as visible as a lot of the newspaper accounts made it sound because he said that he only noticed the wear marks that was under a certain light at a certain angle. So I don't think they were as prominent as many of their news reports would have you think they were. Like I said, he said he only noticed them under a certain light at a certain angle. Did he notice those wear marks? So, so can we 100% connect that jacket to Evelyn's disappearance? Likewise the with the shoes and, and these other items. What would you say your percentage of certainty that they could be connected to Evelyn's disappearance? Uh, they said the shoes and the jacket were by spectrographic analysis. I don't know how they did the spectrographic analysis on the jacket. I do know the jacket did fall out of favor as time went on with some of the investigators. They didn't know if it was there, but I'd say it's probably a good 50-50 chance that it was there. I, I don't – I'm more – with the scientific analysis they did on the shoes and with it matching the, the prints around the house, I'd say the shoes are definite. I don't, I don't know about the jacket, to be honest with you. It's, it's up in the air with me. And the brawn panties, that, though, the brawn panties, though, you're fairly, fairly certain those were Evelyn's. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. They were discovered three days afterwards. And all this stuff, I mean... Um, were if, they all if, found in the same area? No, the brawn panties were found at one mile, um, two miles south of the, the Rasmussen home. And then it, it was 11 miles outside of the city, 800 feet apart where the shoes and the jacket were. The jacket was supposedly found 800 feet away from the shoes. So... So nowhere near um, each other they were found. Nowhere near each the, other. Well, the shoes and the jacket semi route. Yeah, semi in the same area, but not the brawn panties, no. Yep. Let's move on to this. The Wizard Motorbike. Uh, maybe you sh should first explain what a Wizard Motorbike is, and then is that somehow connected to this disappearance as well? They said some of the, um, the wear marks underneath one of the shoes would indicate that the operator, that the person that wore the shoes – 
operated a Wizard motorbike. A Wizard motorbike is basically uh, a, a bicycle with a motor on it. Basically, it's a it's you kind of think of like an antiquated moped, a lot slower, I guess you'd say. I got pictures of it on my blog, but it's just a bicycle with a motor on it. Because a lot of the pedals, like I think it could, you can probably match that kind of a, a wear pattern up with any kind of machinery, like even a farm grader. Like I, I did some research on that. And the farm grader had the the gas pedal on the same side that a wizard motorbike would have on it, and 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 the the pedal looked at, had it made a distinctive mark too. So I don't know, unless they knew more, they probably knew more than I did. But uh, I wouldn't have. I guess they they went in and investigated a lot of the wizard motorbike owners, but no good lead ever came of that. So I think it, you could say that the the wear pattern on the shoe and the bottom of the shoe could come with any kind of uh machinery pedal i guess you'd say i mean i guess it could be matched to a lot of different ones i don't know why they focus on a wizard motorbike but they seem to okay let's go to some suspects now we're just going to keep it to a couple because uh there were there were extensive list of people that they looked at um some more probable than others but we're just going to stick to a few of them and what would probably be the most prominent ones. Uh, what can you tell the listeners about Hayward Teague and why did they look at him? Hayward Teague, um, he was a, uh, a 19 year old African American kid from, um, the Chicago, Illinois area. The car that he was driving seemed to match descriptions of the tan colored car that was seen in the neighborhood. Um, inside one of the shoes that they found, they said they had found an African-American hair. I don't know how good the testing was back then. I do know that years and years afterwards, they kept comparing um, the handprint on the side of the, of the Eugene Downer home with African-American suspects that committed similar crimes. Hayward Teague was um, driving a stolen, what was what they said was a stolen car um, from Illinois, um, and they had, they had stopped him. And uh, there was a couple days prior in Madison, Wisconsin, there was a couple assaults um, on newly newly uh, developed housing houses in in a, new, a newly developed area in Madison. In fact, one of the suspects entered in through a basement window, and he uh, attacked a, a housewife there and hit her with a slapjack. I guess a slapjack is kind of like an improvised uh, short club. Short, short club. club. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I guess he had clubbed one housewife with one, and she had uh, yelled out for her her son. And I guess um, the suspect thought that it was, her husband may have been home, so he fled. There was a couple of attacks on housewives in Madison. One of the um, wives that were attacked actually picked out Teague from a, a line of suspects and said that was the person that did it. So they kind of zeroed in on Teague as possibly uh, been involved in the Hartley abduction. Um, he was given a lie detector test um and he actually passed it stating that he didn't do anything had nothing to do with the madison attacks i heard up to maybe one or two of the victims in the madison wisconsin attacks 
had picked him up out of a lineup, but he seemed to have passed the lie detector test. The, the car that was supposedly stolen, he did get charged with stolen vehicle, but it was, it was I think it was um, pled down to a lesser charge because it, the car was actually either a relative or a friend's, and he said that the person let him borrow it. So I don't know the real big story behind all of that, but he did plead to something um, that was a lesser charge. Um, but um, they did look into his prints and they did look into him as a suspect in the Hartley abduction. But to my knowledge, nothing ever, ever came of this. Um, could he have been in the area of La Crosse, Wisconsin at, on that night? Yeah, because he drove. He, uh, he, I guess he drove through into Minnesota at one point. So um, they, they wanted to see if he was in the area. I guess he denied being in the area. So it, it's possible. He was in the area at the time, but there's no proof that he that he was or that he had anything to do with the Hartley abduction. Okay. And did they try to match his hand to that handprint, the bloody handprint on the other house? Um, they did look into the prints, but I'm assuming since he was never charged or arrested that nothing ever came of that. But I'm not sure how good the bloody palm print. It was just a bloody palm print. I don't think there was any fingerprints on it. It was just a palm print. So I don't know how well they could have matched it. Okay. And... Uh, I'm guessing that, uh, he never intimated to anybody that he might've had something to do with Evelyn's disappearance in any way. Never confessed to, you know, a friend, girlfriend, a cellmate, anything like that. No, he just seemed like a a guy that was just kind of like a delinquent. Um, I ended up, um, getting hold of a background check on Teague just last night and he was, um, arrested a few times later on in his life up until 1984 it was like he relocated to miami florida and he was still breaking into houses in, in 1984 but nothing that i saw on his record it was like one resisting arrest but it was n- done non-violently i guess i don't know how they i guess he was resisting arrest resisting an officer but he wasn't doing it violently but there's nothing violent in his background that would lead me to believe that he had done something like that before or he did anything since. And, and just to be clear, he was never charged with those other break-ins either. No, he wasn't. Um, even though he was person, identified. Even though he's identified and he passed, he passed the lie detector test and the person that was investigating the local law enforcement uh, didn't believe that he was involved, but they said they didn't count him out. So I guess they said that, you know, they had no evidence stating that he did and they'd probably, that he probably didn't based on their investigation. Who is John Watson? John J. Watson, John Joseph Watson. He was a uh, he was a pretty bad guy. He at one time he lived in Madison, Wisconsin as well. Um, he was just an all around bad guy. He um, he was convicted and uh, he was almost convicted in, in 1959 of killing Edna Mausch, a uh, Minnesota um, wife that he had ended up. Um, beating to death he broke into her house and murdered her and um, he was arrested for it and for some reason I never understood it years later the DA in the case um, dropped all charges in the mouse slaying and didn't charge him with it it would only come back to haunt him years later in 2003 where they were able to actually match DNA from the Edna mouse slaying Mm -hmm. to John Watson and then in 2003 
they followed up on charging, and he was convicted of that. He was already serving a life sentence on a couple other things. He had kidnapped three college girls, I believe in Minnesota. Um, in what year? In the, sometime in the 70s. I want to say 73, but it was in the 70s somewhere. Um, and he was going to, he raped them, but he, he, I don't think he killed them. I think they all got away. None of them, none of them were killed, thankfully, but they caught up with him and, and he was charged with that. He also attacked two women with a hammer and, um, killed one of them and, um, the other one survived, fortunately. Um, and he was serving a life sentence for that when they, when the charges with, with the mouse slang were brought back up, um, Part of it was he was bragging that he did kill Edna Mosh um, to a jailhouse person, and he bragged about it. And that's well, part of the reason they caught him, because back in 1959, like I said, the, the evidence wasn't really well taken care of. So they couldn't prove that he was there, but he ended up telling on himself to a jailhouse buddy. But like I said, charges were dropped, and it wasn't until 2003 that he was recharged. He, he passed away in 2004, but his prints were also compared to the palm print as well. Um, but nothing ever came of it either. Um, was John Watson looked at right away regarding Evelyn's disappearance or did it take that, that case in 1959 for them to take a look at him? Uh, uh, he was looked at, um, maybe a year or two afterwards. And I think they were trying to, um, I think he a bit might have been the person responsible for the Madison attacks. Cause when I did background research on him, I noticed that he also lived in Madison at the time so that's kind of convenient i don't know why the housewives would have picked out teague because i don't know i've only got i've got pictures of both of them on my on my blog they don't look alike unless um unless you know there, there's years between the pictures but um to me they don't look alike a, a lot alike at all but um i think um he may have been responsible for the madison attacks uh, but he, it's never been conclusively proven who was responsible for the madison attacks and I'm guessing that his palm print didn't quite match the bloody print uh, for either size reasons or whatever. So that's the reason he was never charged in Evelyn's disappearance. Correct. I'm sorry. The other thing that makes me believe that it wasn't Watson was um, he did all of his stuff alone. He did it by himself. And from what it sounds like with Evelyn's, there were at least two people involved. So. Let's talk about one more possible suspect, but it's not so much a suspect, but a recording that was made. What can you tell the listeners about that? Yeah, in uh, 2004, um, a local bar owner in uh, Wisconsin um, came forward with a tape that he had made in 1973 of a guy that he was uh, recording. Um, he was just recording because he thought he said he thought he was a funny guy. He was a local character in the area, and uh, the guy started talking about um, Evelyn Hartley, Evelyn Hartley uh, case, and the guy's name was Whitey Barkley, and he he was an older guy. He was just um, talking about how him and his buddy, he thinks his buddy Jack Galter, name was Jack Galter, was involved in the Hartley abduction. And he stated that um, I got part of the transcript on my blog, but it's just him um, talking about how Galtier was involved in uh, Hartley's abduction. And it it's interesting, um, but 
I'm, a lot of people have really dug into the tape. But I, to me, it just sounds like uh, a guy that maybe had a few drinks and just telling a tall tale. Um, to give you some, some perspective on it, they, they investigated a suspect after Evelyn's um, abduction. And it was a guy that was saying that he knew where Evelyn's body was. And he was a guy that came into a bar all the time. And they investigated him and find out that he was just telling tall tales. He was just a loudmouth drunk. And this is what kind of it kind of reminds me of Barkley's talking and he's talking about how Galtair went out and knew Evelyn was going to babysit in advance and he got a hold of her and they took her and I guess they took her to a farm in Lafarge and Lafarge, Wisconsin and, and murdered her and stuff like that. It's, part of the transcript has been released and it's on my blog. It's real brief, but I didn't put a whole lot of weight on it. The only thing that I thought was somewhat interesting that um about it is jack galtair who since he he actually ended up committing suicide several years after evelyn's abduction but um he was um convicted the year prior to evelyn's abduction to contributing to the delinquency of a minor and it was also a 15 year old girl apparently he was getting her drunk and i guess he tried to take advantage of her at at one of the houses he was staying at and he later got charged with it, but um, that's was this in was one. this in the area of where Evelyn disappeared? It was in Wisconsin. I don't know if it was in the area that she disappeared in. It wasn't in it wasn't in La Crosse, no. But it was in um, it wasn't far away. It's one of the towns, um, Viroqua, which is uh, I believe up north. If I remember correctly, I could be wrong. But um, yeah, so that the guy came forward with the recording in 2004 because he said he had forgotten about it which i think is kind of weird and when was uh, the recording actually made 1973 so he held on to it for 31 years yeah 73 74 it was around the 30th anniversary when this was released which i found oh, kind of suspicious so a lot of people have really tried to dig into that and they've galter was convicted of contributing to the delinquency of a minor and it was a 15 year old girl so they tried to make connections there but um, the police did follow up on it. They did go to a house that supposedly Jack Galtier had lived in, and they went to the location even 30 years later and talked to the person that owned the house. And they said, can we have a look around? We're investigating a 30-year-old murder. And they looked around and stuff, but they said they did follow up on it, but nothing really ever came of it. There's been leads that they followed up on, like in um, 1989 in Pickwick, Minnesota. They followed up on a on a lead that was actually um, related to Galtier as well. And in some way, he was one of his uh, friends. I believe it was uh, uh, the guy they may have interviewed. It may have been Barkley. Um, I could be wrong, but somebody that one of his uh, people that he knew owned uh, some land out in Pickwick, Minnesota. They thought that maybe they got a tip that a car and a body had been buried out there a long time ago. And they went out there and dug for a better part of a day and, they didn't come up with anything, and they said that um, they don't believe that the Pickwick uh, Minnesota tip had anything to do with um, Evelyn Hartley. So, Were any of the neighbors investigated? Just to finish this section up of suspects, were any of the neighbors investigated at all? Uh, depends on which um, newspaper you read. I don't think they were investigated. They were talked to. Um, some... The Chicago Tribune won an award for their coverage of the Hartley case, which I find 
incredibly crazy, but um, I don't think they did a, little, a real good job in terms of covering it because they, they posted a couple articles like with um, Mr. X. They stated that he had seen the, the same car that he saw that night in the area and that he, he seen the driver and recognized the driver. But he, he said that he never told them that. But if you read some of the newspapers like the Chicago Tribune, they stated that some of the neighbors hadn't been talked to, but other neighbor, other reports from locally said that they, they did investigate and talk to all the neighbors. So it depends on where you go. I wouldn't put too much credence on the Chicago Tribune reports. Some of them are good, but not all of them. They're trying to sensationalize the whole thing. But um, I don't think they were ever investigated. They may have been, but um, they were definitely talked to. So we have this very complex case to the point where we're not even sure how Evelyn left her left the house. We're not sure if she went out the front door, the back door, the window in the cellar. We have the blood evidence. We have a palm print. We have the sighting of a car. We have this Mr. X guy whose sighting seems to be pretty credible. We have um, a couple suspects who, in general, would seem like good suspects, but... Still, this case is still unsolved 64 years later. Um, it doesn't seem like it's any closer to being solved. Uh, so, what's your best guess at this point? You've devoted a lot of time and a lot of space on your blog uh, on this particular case. As much as any case I think you've covered on there, maybe except for maybe Tammy's Tammy Leopard's case. Um mm-hmm. What's your best guess at this point, Anthony? Um, Not if, so I, far I as a suspect, as far as what actually happened that night. I believe that it was a break-in gone bad. I'm, I'm, I'd put money on it. It was a break-in gone bad. I don't believe they saw Evelyn prior to breaking in. I think that she was – they surprised each other. I think they were local to the area. I think they may have even been – involved in the search possibly now i don't have any reason to believe that that's just a hunch on that part but um that there was i take it from the taking it from the reason that there was a prowler that was in the area for the better part of a year mm-hmm. in that area they weren't able to catch him um he was coming back and they even had issues with prowlers afterwards i believe if, if i haven't i'll put it up after we have this conversation, but I do have articles a couple of years afterwards that still that still show that there was a prowler in the area and they were still having problems. And I don't believe they ever caught him. Um, I believe that she could have recognized it was a small town at the time, around 40,000 people. So I believe that they were local to the area and that was possibly the reason she was taken. Um, I believe the evidence was planted um, in terms of everything was placed there after either the search parties missed it, that they were looking for the evidence. They missed the boots, the jacket, and the, and the brawn panties. I, be- I happen to believe that they were planted to mislead, to make it look like they were going outside of town when they really weren't. That's my best guess. I don't think any of the suspects that they've looked into or mentioned, um, any of them were good suspects. Not Hayward um, Teague, not John Watson, not the guys mentioned on the tape. You happen to believe that this crime was perpetrated by somebody a little closer to the community than somebody outside the community. Yeah, I do. I do. And I think it, I don't think that the person 
was experiencing this type of crime and I think it got out of hand. I, I believe she, um, I think he, there was drag, there was a shag rug that was on the living room floor that they said that there were drag marks on it. I believe uh, she may have heard something going on downstairs and he may have been coming up the stairs as she went to investigate and she, he either grabbed her or she lost one of her shoes and they ran into the, the living room and there was a struggle. And I think he incapacitated her and he drug her somewhere to the side or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the evidence is so misleading. I think she went out the front door. I think she probably ran out the front door to get away and he caught up with her. Um, and then a struggle ensued about 10 feet from the window. He may have even hit her with that screen to incapacitate her. But I think she was semi-conscious when he was leading her out of the neighborhood. I think he just got out of hand. I think there was another person in a car off Cooley Drive that was basically the watch out. I think this guy was the, the burglar slash vandal, whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. And he was burglarizing houses. I think that was the lookout car like you would with a bank robbery. You have somebody outside the, the bank ready to drive off. And I think that um, it got out of hand and he decided that he had to, she was already outside. I'm not sure if the screams happened or not. I'm, I don't know. I don't think the Satterbacks heard her scream, though. That doesn't make any sense to me. But I think that he, it got out of hand and he didn't know what to do. And I, I don't think he was experiencing it. And I think it was somebody very local. And I don't think they probably ever did it again. But um, none of the suspects look good from what I looked at. And lacrosse had a um a high percentage of um they call them sexual deviants then but uh sexual predators now i guess they call them um in the area then so there was a good amount of them around that area uh higher than higher per capita than any anywhere else in wisconsin so um but you still reject the idea that this perpetrator uh, was going after Evelyn, might have been prowling the air, saw her inside, and wanted to take her. You're still under the belief that this was a crime of wanting to steal stuff, not a person. Yeah, because if, if it was a sexual crime, you could have done it right there and left. You didn't have to take her. Was there but anything, to your knowledge, was there anything in the house of the Rasmussens worth taking? No. I mean, I, I mean besides the regular sure. stuff like jewelry, I mean, I guess we forget that you know, it's 1953. You can't carry a TV back then. Mm-hmm. They're too big. Um, you know, uh, Americans, at least these days, have so much more expensive possessions than they did back then. You know, we have computers, we have cell phones, we have iPads, we have all this stuff that's within our house. Back then, not as much. So are you thinking this might have been something along the lines of wanting to steal Mrs. Rasmussen's jewelry? Or something. Probably. I mean, there was house burglaries still back then, and money and jewelry have been um, stolen all through time. So, yeah, it's probably something. I mean, I, it has to be something. I mean, I imagine. I don't know if there was anything in the house that was worth stealing. I imagine there was, or they wouldn't be breaking into it. But um, I don't know what it would have been in Target, but I do think it was a burglary motive and it got out of hand. And you also reject the idea that this might have been a case of mistaken identity where this person who broke into the house thought the other babysitter was there instead and she was the target. And then this guy or men got into this house and figured out, uh-oh, this, the, pers- the girl that we thought is here is not here. You totally reject that. 
I don't totally reject it. I just don't find it. I mean, I, I'll be I'll be open to anything, mm-hmm. but at this time, I don't I don't think that would be the case. No, um, mistaken identity. She did this a week in advance, and I'm sure since the original babysitter told everybody that she's going to be at the game, um, I don't think a, mista- a case of mistaken identity would have worked. It didn't. I, I don't believe it was students either. Like they focusing on the students, I don't really don't believe it was. I really believe it was somebody local to the area, and I don't believe they were students. I really An don't. Adult, not a teenager. Right. What's the status of this case right now? Would you call this a cold case? Completely cold. Oh yeah, it's really cold. I don't think um, law enforcement did some odd things. Like um, I have a four-part special on my blog with Steve Bothoon, who was a, um, a a TV reporter out of Wisconsin. He's since passed away, unfortunately. I've spoken to his son, but um, he did an investigative uh, four or five part, I forget, on my four or five part special on my blog. Um, he stated, they got, lacrosse really got sloppy in some of the aspects. I don't think they know where the jacket and um, the shoes are anymore, because in and that special 1989, he states that um, lacrosse uh, police department said they don't have it. They, they sent it to the state crime lab. The crime lab said that they never received it. They don't have it. So um, it's definitely a cold case because I they don't even know where the evidence is anymore. So I don't. I think if they they come up with a lead, they'll like to like to do with the tape that they'll look into it. But I don't think that um, it's something they're actively pursuing. Mm-hmm. Definitely a cold case. So the only way it's going to get solved if, is if somebody just walks right into their police department and says, yeah, I did it, or I have proof of who did it. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, and, really. and it, uh, odds are, I mean, Evelyn would be 80 years old, 81 or something. So odds are whoever did it's probably long since passed away. Um, her, her, One of her older brothers passed away just last year, Thomas Hartley. Um, the other brother, the oldest brother, um, um, he died of polio in the Navy in 1940. It's either 46 or 50. I get two different accounts, but the only one left now is her sister, her younger sister, who was uh, six years old at the time, Carolyn. So, um, yeah, and um, the Hartley family got kind of lost faith in it after a while. After a couple of years, they um. They said they didn't want to read about it anymore, and I can't blame them. Um, Did the Rasmussens continue to live in that house after that happened? No, they didn't. They sold it months afterwards. From what I understand, they wanted to get away from it. Um, and the new house that they moved to, they made sure that they had bars in the basement windows. I mean, it really affected both families and really the community, but the two families involved, it really, really affected them uh, big time. Why don't you, uh, Anthony, watch this time, why don't you give uh, everyone, the listeners, uh, the address to your uh, website, the good work you're doing there, and maybe mention a couple of the other cases that you've been writing about recently as well. Uh, the website is crimeblogger1983.blogspot.com. Uh, you can also contact me if you want me to blog about a case at crimeblogger1983 at gmail.com. Um, we just got done, I just got done blogging about a case of, um, 
Parker Eastman contacted his family and thankfully he was found safe a couple of days ago. That was a recent case we did. Um, one of the cases I'll be doing in the near future is the case that actually got me started on Evelyn's case, ironically. Um, it's Joan Risch, and I'll be doing a pretty lengthy uh, blog entry on her uh, coming pretty soon. I'm still on Evelyn's because there's so much case information that I'm having to continuously update. I spent the better part of two years on Evelyn. I probably spent about three years on Joan Risch. But um, some of the other cases I've blogged about, um, of course, you know, Tammy, Tammy's case. And um, that's pretty much those, those three cases are pretty much the most prominent ones. Um, I did one on Lee Ochi recently, Lee Marine Ochi. I spoke to her dad, I even did an interview with her father. So I guess I also have to, at this point, being that you're on the program again, I have to thank you for introducing me to Deanna Riley, who was a guest. Regarding oh, yeah. the disappearance, disappearance, disappearance of her sister or her mother, Lucinda, in the Tampa Bay area back in 1984. The listeners don't know Anthony is the one who put me in contact with uh, Deanna, so I need Anthony. I need to thank you for that. Um, yeah. So you've also have that case on your blog as well. So uh, any last words before we conclude this interview? Um, no, I really thank. I'm really thankful that uh, I was able to come on and talk about the. Evie's case, um, there's not a whole lot of information on it, and you've mentioned in all the cases that she's not one that she's one that seems to be forgotten in a lot of the missing person cases. So it's one that um, I spent a lot of research on, and there's still some things that we covered the broad aspects here, all the basics. There's still some other things that they might want to check out in terms of them possibly thinking they found the car in Minnesota and so on that they might want to check out. There's a lot of other details that you might want to check out if you're interested in the case that are on the blog. And I always, I'm continually updating that entry. So, um, okay. but I'm, I'm real honored to be on this show for your first reoccurring guest. So I uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. You're welcome. The blog is crimeblogger1983.blogspot.com. And Anthony, I thank you for being on this episode of Unfound. Thank you. You're welcome. And that was my interview with Anthony from crimeblogger1983.blogspot.com. He's doing nice work over there regarding Evelyn's case and many others. One point we left out regarding Evelyn's disappearance, the serial killer Ed Ginn was also looked at as being a suspect. But like the other men, there was no hard proof either way. Regarding the interview, here are some points that stuck out to me. Evelyn's footprints weren't found anywhere on the outside of the house. Was she carried? If so, that would contradict the eyewitness who said she was walking. And if this witness got something like that wrong, what does it mean? Evelyn's shoes. I don't think they came off while trying to get away. I bet she used them as weapons, throwing them at whoever entered the house. And that's the reason they were in two different locations. Evelyn being taken away. That's something that confuses me, because this doesn't appear to be a break-in that turned into something more. Unless. I don't do a lot of theorizing on the actual podcast of Unfound. I do most of it over at the Patreon blog. But I want all of you to hear this, and I want to hear what you think of it. 
This line of thinking would certainly fall under the shadow of coincidence category, although I typically don't like coincidences in crimes. Say the burglar knew that the regular babysitter wasn't working the Rasmussen house that night. He found out that she was going to the homecoming game. He also hears that the Rasmussens are going to the homecoming game. So putting those two facts together, the burglar thinks that the Rasmussens are taking their 20-month-old baby to the game as well. Why? Because the babysitter will be at the game. Thus, the Rasmussen house will be empty. Burglar gets to the house. Yes, he sees the lights on, but doesn't think anything of it. It could be the Rasmussens left the lights on to scare away guys like himself. Burglar goes to the window, pries it open, gets inside, and then there's Evelyn on the stairs. At that point, he has to take her with him when he escapes. Why? Because the only way a guy would know that the regular babysitter was at the game and that the Rasmussens were going to the game would be someone from the area as well, somebody from the neighborhood. Someone who was close enough to both the regular babysitter and the Rasmussens to know this information. And probably also somebody that knew Evelyn Hartley as well. And at that point, the burglar knew that he had to take her with him when he escaped because she would be able to identify him. What he didn't know was that the Rasmussens made other arrangements for that night, screwing up this burglar's plans but I'll leave the rest of the theorizing up to you. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to the app that you use to listen to Unfound and give this podcast a five-star review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound.